Tonight I'll be reading two things before you hear the sermon. The first is where we are in the Shorter Catechism, and it's the Fifth Commandment. So I'm going to read what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says in questions 64 through 66, and then we'll be reading the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13. Question 63 is, what is the fifth commandment? The answer is, the fifth commandment is, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Question 64 is, what is required in the fifth commandment? The answer is that the fifth commandment requires a preserving of the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. Question 65, what is forbidden in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment forbids the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their several places and relations. And finally, question 66, what is the reason fixed to the fifth commandment? The reason fixed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall keep for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep his commandment. So the fifth commandment is about rightful authority, and the example, of course, is used, that is used is the first authority that most of us learn, and that is the authority of our mothers and our fathers in our homes. And tonight I want to turn to Romans chapter 13, not to the relationship between us and our parents, but the relationship between us and other authorities, the civil authorities, the government that God has given to us. So Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. The Word says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. This is the Word of God. I can't help but smile as I think about preaching to you from the first two verses specifically of Romans chapter 13. If you go back about two years in our church's history, you may remember that during about the middle of COVID, I didn't know it was the middle at the time, but it turns out it was, I preached a series of sermons from Romans 13 describing the relationship that Christians have with the civil authorities. And tonight's sermon is entitled Romans 13, Six Months Later. The reason that it's six months later, it's fudging the time a little bit, is that the CDC declared that the COVID epidemic was over on May 11 of 2023. So we are essentially post-COVID. Now, I just want to note that that does not mean that the effects of COVID are over. I would testify in our own family that is hardly the case. There are variants that still go around, and of course, there are those who suffer long-term with the effects of that particular 
uh, of that particular infection. But it may be helpful for us to think together about our relationship to the state as individual believers and the church when COVID is not happening. It's sort of akin to this. Imagine that you just had a very spirited conversation with your son or your daughter of maybe early teenage years. Maybe there's a question about how they're going to spend Friday evening, or if they're a little older, whether they'll have permission to take out the car. And in the middle of that spirited discussion, you say to yourself, now would be a good time for me to explain to you how you are called to obey your parents in the Lord. Maybe next weekend when our speaker comes, she'll say, that's bad timing. I would hope so. It is usually better to, to wait until things are not quite as spirited, <laughs> there's not quite the emotion, before that relationship is really explained. The same is true in regard to our relationship to the state. And tonight I want to just lay out for you two very simple things from the first two verses of Romans chapter 13. The first is the command, the command that is found in the first verse of this chapter where Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then secondly, I want to explain the reasons that are given at the end of verse 1 into verse 2. He follows up this very simple command, this very direct command with three reasons why this should be the case for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand, first of all, that the command that comes in verse 1 is a general command. It is the same sort of command that we think about in the fifth commandment. When it says in the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, and Paul follows up in Ephesians by saying, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. There may be times when we are called not to obey our parents because they are commanding us to do something that is contrary to God's will, but that does not mean the commandment still does not stand. The commandment is there even if there are exceptions occasionally to that commandment. So tonight I want to begin with the command, the command that I read just a moment ago, and I'll reread again, where Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now I want you to note when Paul says this, the context in which he is writing First, there is the context of the Scripture, and then secondly, there is the context of his history. If you go back in your Bibles to chapter 12, you'll see that Paul notes in chapter 12, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you may memorize this, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may, able be, be, that you may be able to prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Paul is speaking there about what it means for us to do more than just obey the commandments of God in a wooden fashion. He is saying, offer yourself the entirety of who you are to God. And then if you go on to read in the rest of chapter 12, Paul talks about using our gifts for the benefits of others, loving without hypocrisy, being patient in adversity, not lagging in prayer, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and mourning with those who mourn. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It means more than just theoretically that we would offer ourselves, it is that we would actually offer ourselves. And not just occasionally, but in the fullness of life. 
And if those are the activities of the Christian according to chapter 12, so is the activity at the beginning of chapter 13. If it is holy to be fervent in prayer, it is also holy to obey the commandment found in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authority. Now notice that this commandment is very direct, just like the fifth commandment itself. It does not say we are called occasionally to obey our parents in the Lord, to honor them. Paul says very specifically, this applies ordinarily to every single person. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no one who simply excuses themselves from what this command says. We do not have special privileges individually or as a people from obeying the ordinances of the government. What is good for one is good for all. That is the ordinary truth. What is good for the unbeliever is also good for the believer. That's the ordinary truth. Now, when I say that, you may think to yourself, well, that is pretty bold. I remember the first time I preached in this passage. I was very new in ministry, only a couple of years. I preached it in a very rural community. This was shortly after the president had been accused, the president of that time, of doing some very unsavory things with an intern in his office. And there were all kinds of jokes that would float around, and there was all sorts of disregard for the president and his office. And I remember a little lady, little old lady, not to be dismissive, she was little and she was old. <laughs> she said to me, but pastor, it is so hard to respect people who are so very ungodly. And because of that, within Christendom, that is within the Western church, there have been exceptions to us to, to this commandment, which are quite broad. Take, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. It has taught historically that the church is not subject to the state. In fact, quite the opposite, it says. The state should be subject to the church. After all, the church is closer to God than the state is, and therefore the state should obey the church. Let me give you a very simple example of how that is true. Although the Vatican itself is found within the city limits of Rome, it is officially not subject to its laws. You may think that's an odd quirk of history, no, I believe it is also reflective of the attitude of the Roman church. The Vatican is its own proximity. It is its own entity. It is not subject to other governing authorities outside of its ecclesiastical system. If I can be also a little more overt and just be careful in what I'm about to say, when the homosexual abuse of children in the Roman church came to light, Quite a number of years ago, many people were surprised that so many priests had done horrible things without prosecution by the state. And since that time, within other Christian denominations, that has also been the case, if not with homosexuality, with other forms of abuse. And the question is, well, how could people, leaders in the church, get away with that for so long? How is it possible the governing authorities did not know? Well, at least in the Roman church, it's fairly obvious. The Roman church had its own system to take care of its problems. It did not believe that it had to tell the civil authorities what had happened. That particular point was changed. 
After that scandal broke, the bishops met in Dallas and changed their position on that matter, saying it is now necessary that priests who are accused of abuse in the Roman church have to report that to the civil government. Now, let me be clear about what that means. It is not the responsibility of the state to be the church or the church the state. When the state is operating as a state, enforcing laws that are intended for the common good, then even the church does not have the right to disobey or disregard. To give you a very clear example, if the elders of our church became aware and I'll use myself as the example, as horrible as that is, that I was doing something illegal. If I had been abusive to someone in this church, to someone who is a minor, you would not only be good, it would be required that the church would report that to the state. That's what Paul means when he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, including in the civil sphere, Those who are in the church are responsible to the state. Now, we emphasize this in the command here by saying this is an enduring, encompassing command. He says we must be subject to the civil authorities, not simply obedient, but subject. It's sort of akin to the way that Paul interprets the fifth commandment in regard to parents and children. The commandment says, honor your father and mother, and Paul interprets that, at least partially, to mean obey them. That's part of what it means to be honoring. Paul now says, be subject. That means not simply obey occasionally, but ordinarily. It is the calling of a Christian within the civil sphere to obey the government and its commands. That raises for us a whole series of questions. Maybe the most obvious is, well, what do we do in situations when we may believe the government is requiring us to do something wrong. You might even use the example of the recent COVID restrictions. Before we talk about that, I simply want to note to you what is ordinarily true. I want to impress this upon you very clearly. Because it may be that our objection to what Paul says here, to what the Bible says, is not based on legitimate concern. It may be based on a rebellious heart. Do you not see that to be true in your own heart? None of us are so far removed from being a child that you know that feeling when your parent says to you, you have to do this. What's the first thing that you think in your heart? Do I really? (laughs) It could be something so very small. Could you clean your room? Could you clean up the dishes after supper? Could you take out the garbage? It's time to cut the lawn. What's the first thought that goes through many of our minds? I don't care this, this afternoon whether you're 10 or 15 or 50. The first thought that may go through my mind quite often is, why? Why do I have to do that? I have a sister or brother who could do that. Instead, you're asking me, why is my life difficult? My life would be better if I just did what I wanted. Is that not often what we believe to be true? Be honest. And it is in that circumstance that Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It is our calling as Christians ordinarily 
for us to obey the governing authorities. Now, I noted at the beginning of this portion of my sermon that I would talk about both the context of the passage, but also Paul's historical context. My word about the historical context is very simple. Paul lived under the Roman regime. It was not a godly regime. Those who ruled believed themselves to be gods. Our rulers haven't progressed to that point, even though they may secretly hold it to be true. <laughs> they also made laws that are overtly wrong. You may worship no one but the emperor, or you must worship the emperor in addition to your own God. Paul lived in very ungodly times. And yet he says to us, in the word of God, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. If that challenges your heart and your experience, it does mine too. Which leads us to consider the reasons that are found at the end of verse 1 into verse 2. Again, he says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. As I said, there are three reasons that Paul gives why we should ordinarily, as the normal course of our existence as Christians, obey the civil authorities. The first is this. He says there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I remember discussing when I was not that old in ministry with a man who was, his job was to write test questions. If you are now a junior or senior in high school or you're in college, you may have taken the ACT or the SAT. Remember that? Yep. If you're in college and you're thinking about going to law school, there is an exam called the LSAT, the LSAT, the Law School Admission Test. If you've ever taken it, it is amazing. It will test your mind and your logical skills. It was his responsibility on behalf of one of these testing companies to write the questions for that test. We would get together and talk, and he was always fascinating. I remember him saying to me at one point, he says, the indicative does not infer the imperative. That is to say, what is true does not necessarily infer or lead to what is commanded. Now, if that's a bit complicated, I'll just put it this way. You may read this first reason, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, and you'll say to yourself, that's obvious. God is the king of the universe. Of course an authority would not exist if it was not for the fact that God put that authority in place that does not mean the authorities are right. And there's a certain value to that argument that is true. The fact that an authority exists does not necessarily mean that authority is right in every case. But this first reason is meant to establish this thought. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for this reason first, because it is natural to the structure of our society that there would be governing authorities. That's Paul's point. Now, throughout human history, there have been all sorts of civil governments. There have been monarchies. There have been democracies as we live in. There have been oligarchies. And this is not meant to argue this sermon that one particular form is found in the Scripture itself as though the commandments 
leads to democracy automatically. We might argue that's the best form of government. In fact, John Calvin argued for that, and I think he was right. But in this case, Paul is simply saying in this first reason, all of us are intended by God to live with authorities over us. Because there is no authority except from God. He is arguing from the top on down. The greatest authority is God himself. And then within every legitimate area of life, there are also authorities that exist. If you're a child and you go to school, it is your teacher. If you're driving down the road, it is the police officer. Every legitimate sphere of human history, of human endeavor, has authorities that we are called to answer to. And Paul is saying, understand that this is a natural part of the way the world works after the fall of Adam and Eve. It is the way in which God expresses to us that He is God, and then human society after the fall requires authority, delegated authority, in order for societies to work well. Let me give you one very simple example. If there were no speed limit laws, how fast would you drive? If you've driven in another country, I think of driving in India, for example, you get to a four-way stop or a roundabout, who goes first? He who dares the most. (laughs) Not so in the United States. Why is that? You could say there are cultural reasons for that, but it may simply be this. The laws are enforced. If you pull through a stop sign and do not come to a complete stop and the officer pulls you over, you cannot say, but I don't like that law, sir. (laughs) I didn't think that one applied in this circumstance. I just have more courage than the other drivers, so it must be okay. No, the law is there for the common decency, the well-ordered structure of a human society. In the Old Testament, that was seen more clearly because it was a theocracy. God spoke directly to the kings who were also called his priests, that is, they serve the people of God. In the New Testament period, there is no theocracy. As much as some might want to say the Old Testament law should be reinstituted in terms of government, it has been the opinion of Reformed and Presbyterian folks for many years that is not wise, that is not what God calls us to. There should be no theonomy today. Instead, we live under a, under a variety of civil governments. But core to all those civil governments is this truth. There is no authority except appointed by God. Those authorities exist because God has placed them there. And the fact that they are there reflects the general arrangement that God has given in life that there would be authorities over us. Now, here's the moment. Where you might ask yourself the question, does that mean that we must obey the civil authorities at every moment with every command? And the answer there is certainly not. Christians have never argued for that. And there were plenty of Christians over the last number of years who, uh, who argued for that in the middle of covid We can find many examples in our civil government of those who rule over us who are very, very ungodly. 
those who would not recognize that their power is derived from the divine. We might even say that Christians are in a minority in our nation. And if God gives you the impulse and the desire to run for office, that's a very good thing. Just do not expect that it will be easy. You're entering, as one person has said, one of the most difficult areas of life in which to be a Christian. We have senators and representatives who do not believe that the taking of a child's life is wrong. We have others who believe in a very ungodly view of marriage and human sexuality. We have others who are accused and sometimes convicted of cheating and lying and of using their power inappropriately. All those things are really true. And there are also times when those personal faults are reflected in laws that are ungodly. These are the areas in which we say there are exceptions to legitimate authority's ability to rule, just like any child of mine can say there are times when my dad has not been fair. But that does not take away the general command, not at all. It may be helpful to think for just a moment about the way the Bible describes that exception. Remember, the first command, the first reason given to this command is that this is the general way in which God orders the world. But now let me ask you the question, what happens if our government does not reflect its source of God? Let me give you an extreme example. What if we're not sitting in the United States of America this evening, but we're sitting in North Korea? a place that is openly oppressive of its people, especially of Christians. If you were found to be a Christian in North Korea, you would very likely either be imprisoned or even put to death. It is not an authority that promotes the common good. Would we have the rights to revolt and to not obey this government? That is a question that has been asked frequently by Christians. It is an important question. I simply want to put it in its place. It is the exception. It is not the rule. It is the exception because we all realize that sin has radically affected not only you and me personally and the, the sort of structures that are part of our family and our community in the church, that sin has also affected those in authority over us. These questions about when legitimate disobedience is allowed or even required there will be disagreement about that. I am certain among the members of our congregation, there were differences in the way that we view the government and its authority over the last couple of years. And in some regard, it is certainly legitimate to have differences in what we believe ought to be true. What there can be no difference over, though, is the fundamental command, let every person be subject to the governing authorities... And then this reason why that is true, because God has built this structure into the way that humanity is post-fall, and we must affirm that. The answer to the exception is given to us overtly in Acts 5, verse 29, where Peter and the other apostles tell the civil magistrate, we ought to obey God rather than man. In their circumstance, you can look at Acts chapter 5, they were commanded by the civil magistrate not to preach and proclaim the gospel. 
They were told, you may not speak the good news about Jesus Christ. God had told them precisely the opposite of Matthew 28, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And so the question was obedience either to the magistrate or to God himself. And Paul then says, or Peter then says, there's no hesitation. There is no doubt we must obey God. There are other extreme examples like this in our world I've already noted North Korea. You might also think of China or Vietnam or places in Africa where the open proclamation of the gospel is not allowed. Should we encourage Christians there to be silenced because the civil magistrate requires it? The answer is no. We must say along with the Apostle Peter, we must obey God rather than man. So even though there are these exceptions, let me simply say again, the general reason for obedience continues to hold. This is the way that God has ordered civil life. Let me just note the other two reasons that are given here at the end of verse 1, but now we're into verse 2. Paul says in verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now he's adding on to the general arrangement of human society. This sounds very much like the first reason, and that's okay because it is building on it. If all authority comes from God, then it would follow that if we do not obey the authorities, then we are disobeying God. The order of these things is called, in fact, an ordinance of God. It is the way God has determined it should be. Post-fall, this arrangement of human society is as natural to our world as gravity falling, causing an apple to fall from a tree. Although governments may not always do as they should, and they often overstep the boundaries that they should be rightfully doing, it is nonetheless true that they are part of this order of the world now. If we disobey them, not because we are directly commanded by God, but because we prefer not Or because we say to ourselves, this makes no sense to me personally, I just don't like it. Test your hearts. If you're ever called to operate in disobedience, is it because you say to yourself, we are commanded to do otherwise by God, therefore we must must disobey the government. Ask yourself the question, is that your motivation or is your motivation this? I don't like anyone telling me what to do. Those motivations are often mixed. And we can turn our own dislike and disdain for the government into principled reasons that if we examine our hearts, they are not good reasons at all. If we disobey for less than godly reason, we should not be surprised if we receive judgment. Later on in verse 4, we're told the ruler holds a sword with a reason. He is God's servant. He is rightfully given the ability to punish evil. And that government, God says, should. Without this fear of punishment, many people would turn a deaf ear to the laws the government establishes. Would you not speed if there was no fine? Of course you would. And so Paul says, every person should obey the governing authorities because this is a structure God has given society, and he emphasizes that by saying it is also right in cases in which there is disobedience for less than godly reason that those who live under the authority of the state would be punished. 
Which brings me to the third reason that Paul notes at the end, or in this section of verses, he says, for there is no authority except from God. There is the ultimate reason. God in His providence has given us a particular government where we live. I have to say personally, if we're having lunch together and you ask my opinion about this or that law or this or that person who's ruling over you, I might give you a variety of my own opinion. But within the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to give you an opinion about what I believe to be true. It is my job to tell you, as far as I'm able, what the Scriptures command us to do. And the commandment is a simple one, hard to execute, very contrary to our hearts. And yet it is very clear. Every person should be subject to the governing authorities. I want to note just something that is pretty significant about this passage before I end this evening. You might wonder how this is a particular Christian doctrine. In other words, maybe I could give a lecture like this somewhere else. How about a Jewish synagogue? How about just publicly? I could argue from natural law that the way in which humans are built, there ought to be a structure of authority. I could make that argument. But this particular argument from Romans 13 is a Christian argument. That is, there is some reason why our following Jesus Christ matters in the way that we obey this command. Let me give you a couple of them. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I command everyone to pray for the civil authorities, and then he names them for kings and governors and those in authority over us, so that, he says, there would be freedom for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread. The whole question about civil authorities is a large question about what it means for us to live in a world under a civil government that may sometimes be very ungodly. But I want you to appreciate that in God's economy, that is the way He's working, He has given us in this time and place an opportunity that is not given to other Christians living in other places. The way in, in which Christ is at work in history is to pervert, preserve for us the opportunity here and now to go and speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. No matter what you think of the civil authorities, when you walk out to your car, someone is not going to question and potentially arrest you because you were here worshiping God. And in that time of opportunity, let me say to you very simply that Christ who rules over history provides us with that opportunity and we may lull ourselves into thinking that will always be true. Let me tell you, it might not. And in the time in which Christ has given us this opportunity, friends, use it well. Don't think to yourself, this may always be true. Rather think to yourself, this is a Christian response to the civil authorities that the gospel of Jesus Christ is clearly proclaimed not just here, but in the homes and neighborhoods and communities in which we live. Let me note a second, th second thing as well. 
Not only is this a time of opportunity, and it genuinely is, may I encourage you again, not simply to hear this, but to think to yourself, is it my Christian calling to be active in the civil sphere? I know a lot of Christians, me included, look at involvement in the political process as a necessary evil. I go and cast my vote. Maybe I'm a little cynical about it. I'm like, what good does it do? It's only one vote. Maybe I'm involved in the political process in some other way and it feels almost dirty to me. It is a very difficult area in which to serve. But in the same way that I would command, if a young man were here and he were open to becoming a pastor, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would tell him, run to it. It's difficult, but it's awesome. I would also tell you that God legitimately calls Christian men and women into service in this area. Could it be, just let me ask you, could it be that maybe some of the reason that we're struggling so greatly in our country is that Christians are not involved in the way that they ought to be? We've sort of abandoned this. Is it possible that even though we're reformed and we say we reformed with a reformed worldview, often our approach to the civil authority is a lot more fundamentalist than it is reformed? Let me encourage you strongly to ask yourself at least the question, could I serve, and listen to this, not just serve others, but can I serve the Lord Jesus Christ by being active politically in the place where there is opportunity? In that way, I believe this is a Christian calling. Generally, to hear the command but then specifically to take the opportunity that Christ has given us in the moment and to think specifically in our own hearts, how might God call me to be active in a civil sphere which is incredibly difficult? This commandment is a real one, and it's perhaps, at least for me, the most difficult application of the fifth commandment. Maybe that's unfair of me to say if you're a child and you say to me, but pastor, you don't live with my mom and dad. If you did, you would say that's not the most difficult application of the fifth commandment. Maybe I should be more modest. For many of us as adults, the question of the civil authorities is one of the most difficult places for us to obey in regard to the fifth commandment. Here is our prayer. We're going to pray this in just a moment. That God would give us the soft hearts to hear this command and want to follow it. And God would give us the great wisdom to know when obedience is required and when we ought to object. And we should ask the Lord to raise up people in our own places, families, and our own churches who hear the call to serve and to seek to preserve a culture in which the gospel of Jesus Christ can be heard. Would you join me in prayer? Father, when this passage was written, Paul was writing in a very different political structure and also in a very different cultural setting than what we experience today. And yet the truth that is found in these first two verses of Romans 13 
was not truth that was meant only for his time and place. It's also meant for us. And we confess to you, Lord, it's a difficult truth for us to wrestle with and to apply, especially when we've been through a number of years in which there have been a variety of opinions about what it means to obey. Should we obey this? Should we obey that? And Lord, I would pray that in our church that we would have a great desire to be obedient to the commands of Christ, including this one, that we would not seek to, to avoid it, but instead we would seek to embrace it, to see that to offer our bodies as living sacrifices includes being obedient to the civil authorities. And then, Lord, I also pray that you would give us great wisdom because it is not easy to understand when we must obey God rather than man. And as Christian believers, there are times when we disagree, and we can disagree strenuously, sometimes becoming upset with each other. Lord, may we do that with grace, seeking to understand. And Lord, send your Spirit, guide us, so that when we have those differences, that your Spirit would lead us into truth and help us to know our own hearts, that we're seeking to do what is right, being led by the desire to serve Jesus rather than to reject what is a rightful command. And then tonight, Lord, we also pray that you would raise up in this church and other Bible-believing churches those who might be active in our government. Lord, in some ways we might say that with hesitancy because we see how difficult that might be. We are grateful tonight for those who have answered that call and are active. And we ask, Lord, that you would increase that both for the general course of justice in our world, but also so that the opportunity to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ may continue and that many would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, give us a strength to obey, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.